0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 26, 47 to 56, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Scriptures Must Be Fulfilled.
1: I've long been fascinated by Acts chapter 4. Now in that passage, Peter and John have been arrested, they're put into custody, and the next day they appear before the same council that put Jesus to death. And without going into the details, by God's grace, they're released, and then they report back to the church, and then the church calls for a prayer meeting. And then we come to those words that really fascinate me and they're they're a part of what they prayed. Acts four twenty-seven to 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Now, What's important about that prayer is not that the believers in Jerusalem thought that because these matters were predestined and therefore, you know Herod, Pontius, Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were therefore exempted from moral culpability because they weren't. Those involved in the crucifixion of Jesus are not absolved. They made free moral decisions. They chose to reject their Messiah and to embrace evil. And so why did the church pray the way they did? And the answer goes right back to the context of their praying. Peter and John had been arrested, and if matters had gone badly, they might have been killed, and the key leadership of the newly formed church would have been gone. It's, it's doubtful the church could have gone forward without these key leaders. Everything's at stake here. But the church is encouraged by remembering that the men who crucified Jesus, even though they made their own free moral decisions, yet they were acting within the boundaries of divine will. And hence, when Peter and John were released, this also was according to the preordained will of God. So they didn't have to fear. Now, I make mention of that because in the text we're going to study today, which is Matthew's accurate recounting of the arrest of Jesus twice, we read the words that remind us that this occurred that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, I'm quite sure that when Jesus said these words, he said them for the sake of his disciples. Who can blame the disciples for wondering if everything was falling apart? I mean, Sunday morning, they'd seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, and many believed that he was indeed the long-expected Messiah. And now here they were late on the night of Thursday into Friday, and they're witnessing Jesus praying with loud cries and tears. And now in this place, away from witnesses, comes a crowd to arrest Jesus and take him away. What can give hope in such an hour? Well, it's only this, that the scriptures must be fulfilled. And in this is the message that God continues to be sovereign and that he directs the affairs of men and women. And to be frank, God continues to do so today. I mean, why else would the church take hope after Peter and John had been arrested? Why should any of us have hope today? Is it not this, that while evil may cause chaos and harm, God rules over all? So let's talk about the arrest of Jesus. We're going to divide our passage into three sub-paragraphs. And the first paragraph, as we're going to see, will take us from verses 47 to 50, which is the chaos of the entrance of the arresting army. And the second small paragraph is that, amazingly, Jesus has time during this to instruct his disciples about the meaning of that event. Scriptures are right then being fulfilled. And then, third, we're going to see the words Jesus speaks to the arresting mob. And amazingly, their are words of triumph, right? Then he says he's winning the battle. He's fulfilling scripture. Oh, very good. Let's start with the first paragraph, the one about the entrance of the crowd to arrest Jesus. Matthew 26, 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the 12 and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, "'The one I will kiss is the man, seize him.' And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. I find it fascinating that Matthew still calls Judas one of the 12. Now, I think he does that not because he thinks Judas is still one of them, but because he wants to emphasize the degree of treachery here. Think of how deliberate Judas was. We know that after he left the others during the Passover meal, and no doubt, he had went directly to the chief priests to Annas and Caiaphas, and he's got news. I can direct you to Jesus tonight, and you'll have no difficulty finding him. But a lot had to be done in a very short period of time. Matthew says that when Judas actually arrived, he came with a great crowd. No doubt the chief priests thought that they might be in for a stiff fight, so they had to come with overwhelming force. Perhaps they had to get a message to Pilate to request soldiers. I mean, at the very least, they had to make the request of some leading Roman commander. Then they had to arrange the temple police to join and form with them, with the Romans, into a chain of command. No doubt, the Sanhedrin needed to be alerted as to what was happening. And then weapons had to be procured because each man came with the idea that they might have to fight. Everything from torches and lanterns, swords, everything else was needed. It's no wonder Jesus had the time after Judas left that he could take his disciples to Gethsemane and spend time in prayer. And I've wondered how long Judas had during all these arrangements to think. He wasn't making all the arrangements. I mean, his only role was to lead the troops to where Jesus would be and identify him in the dark. And so while arrangements were being made, I imagine he's standing around, time to think, time if he wanted to repent and to run away, but he doesn't. His decision is not sudden and impulsive. It's deliberate. And John, in his account of this, tells us that Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the priest. And that's not to say that Judas made the arrangements, but he did make suggestions. He would have told the chief priests they had better get an overwhelming force. And so when Matthew calls him one of the twelve, we're called upon to think of just how treacherous this matter is. And what makes the matter even worse is the means by which Judas identified Jesus. It's brazen. He would walk over to him, and as was typical in Middle Eastern culture, he would offer a kiss of friendship. If you're not aware of how that works, it's the kind of kiss where one greets the other and kisses both cheeks. But this act of friendship is an act of betrayal. You know, I've wondered also that perhaps Judas thought that if he simply points Jesus out, the rest of the disciples might attack him. And so furthermore, the kiss tells everyone that he comes in peace, but of course, he doesn't come in peace. You know, since this moment, the the phrase, the Judas kiss, it's become the ultimate descriptor of human betrayal. I mean, Judas kisses are given all the time. I mean, someone in a company or in politics or even in church seeks to remove someone from office or from power. And so in order to be effective, they pretend friendship and goodwill. But all the while, secret plans are in place. Are they being put into place? The Judas kiss, well that refers to the person who smiles and pretends, but is really a betrayer. And so as the men with swords and clubs arrive, it would have been a large company. Some suggest as many as 200 soldiers were perhaps. If that's even close to accurate, we have to imagine the possibility of some person in that crowd acting on their own, and because of that, a fight develops, and then there are multiple deaths, and then Jesus might even escape. Now, a Judas kiss seals Jesus' fate. Judas has decided on it. And so he walks into Gethsemane. He sees Jesus and calls him rabbi. Not Lord, merely rabbi. A distance has already developed. And then he kisses him. Jesus then responds by calling Judas friend. Uh, We shouldn't read that in any way that makes us think that Jesus is referring to him in a close term or in an intimate way. No, no. Friend is a distant term. It's a formal address. And then Jesus adds, do what you came to do. He's telling Judas he understands the kiss is no act of friendship. And he's saying, friend, I know who you are. You are a betrayer. And Matthew then adds that they laid hands on Jesus. So the arresting officers stepped forward immediately. They had been trained to act with speed so that there would be no resistance. But John, who has lengthened this account, tells us that initially Jesus stepped forward and identified himself, and that caused some to fall to the ground. But Jesus hasn't come to fight them. Jesus knew that this was the hour in which he would submit to the will of the Father, even unto death. So, Here we have this interesting juxtaposition between the settled will of God and the moral decisions a group of people choose to make that night. In the case of the chief priests, the choice they made was to murder Jesus. Judas also makes a choice, he will belong to them. And the arresting officers, you know, they simply decide we're gonna do our job. Everyone's acting freely, but everyone also is acting so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That is within the predetermined will of God.
0: Every day we hear from listeners across the country and your words of encouragement mean so much. Mason recently wrote, I really appreciate that you teach the Bible, straightforward, no mincing of words, as it is, and so informative. You know, we're grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your generous support to help extend this program's reach across the nation to resource Canadians with trustworthy Bible teaching. It's a privilege to stand with like-minded and like-hearted individuals who share the steadfast commitment to see others engaged in a dynamic relationship with Jesus, grounded in biblical truth. Your donations are absolutely pivotal in fulfilling Back to the Bible Canada's mission. And we're so blessed by your partnership. To give today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Sometimes people wonder why Judas, or for that matter, anyone, needed to identify Jesus. Well, in order to answer that, please remember how different this world was than ours. I mean, we constantly see pictures of people, and nothing of that kind existed then. And furthermore, there were no doubt many in that group of soldiers that had never seen him before. And furthermore, it was dark. Certainty was needed. And that certainty came in the form of treachery, a treachery that's never been forgotten. The point of application is in order. Many are the failings of God's people. But may it never be said that we deceive or betray in order to get what we want. Betrayal puts us in league with Judas, not Jesus. Would it not be better to be wronged than to become a betrayer? God's never on the side of the betrayer. Let's move to our next section. We've dealt with the appearance of the company of soldiers and others to arrest Jesus, and we now amazingly see there's a moment in this chaos where Jesus instructs his disciples. Matthew 26:51 51-54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? We know that by the time the soldiers arrive, the other eight disciples who had been sleeping some distance from Jesus would have been awakened and run toward the chaos, and seeing this and being the leader among them, Peter goes into action. This incident is mentioned in all the other Gospels, but only John tells us that it was actually Peter that cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. So why don't Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention Peter by name? And I think the answer must be that when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, Peter was still alive and might have been prosecuted by such an admission. By the time John writes, which is much later, Peter has already died and is safely home in glory. And so, Matthew, rather than mentioning Peter by name, simply says, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand. Now, where did Peter get the sword from, which, by the way, must have been a short sword, only good for battle in very close quarters? Well, the answer to that question is given to us by Luke, and he tells us of an event that occurred just prior to the arrest. It's Luke 22:35 to 36. And he said to them, When I send you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Well, did they have time to buy swords just before the arrest? I don't think so. In fact, just after Jesus said that, Luke records in Luke 22, verse 38, and they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And so it's clear to me that they had two swords with him, and Peter surely must have grabbed one of them. But this talk about procuring swords has led to a great deal of discussion about why Jesus wanted his disciples to have them. It is surely not because he wanted them to be involved in an armed rebellion. And we know that with certainty because both in Luke and in Matthew, after Peter had struck off the ear of Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest, that Jesus not only told Peter to put his sword back into the scabbard, but he also tells him that those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus' followers will not be known for their weapons, nor will they be known for their ability to defend themselves on the battlefield. We know that's the case. I mean, you read through the book of Acts, and we soon discover that although the apostles and the other followers of Jesus were often persecuted— there's not one occurrence, not one, where any one of them ever used weapons to defend themselves. It just never happened. And it didn't for several reasons. I mean, first, Jesus had taught them to love their enemies. And second, Jesus, while standing before Pilate, and John records this, John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And so, you know, the kingdom is not of this world, so it doesn't require swords and clubs. And So what do we make of these two swords? Well, it's clear that Jesus was about to send them on a worldwide mission, and I would imagine the swords were necessary both from wild animals and perhaps also from bandits to discourage them. I'm sure Jesus was not calling for the disciples to kill bandits, but these swords were not meant in any way to prevent persecution, nor to be used in propagating the gospel. Many years later, in medieval Europe, the sword was constantly used to forcibly convert people, but to do that is to violate Jesus' commands. And so Peter stands ready to defend Jesus with a sword. I mean, after all, he's just said he'd never deny Jesus and he'd stand with him to the end. And now comes that teachable moment. It's in verse 53. Jesus could well have called on 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels on the spot, and they would very easily have dispatched this little group that had come to arrest him. Peter, do you think your efforts are required here? No, no, your efforts only bring death, he says. And then, but now, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? So what scriptures does he have in mind? I think Psalm 22, 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Think about that verse. Or how about Isaiah 53, 7 to 8? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Scripture, which is given from the mouth of God, is not given, and then nothing occurs. Scripture must be fulfilled, must be. No word from God will be proved untrue. All that God has spoken will occur. And that night as Judah stepped forward, it sounded so eerily like David's words in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. On that night, when the disciples only saw chaos, terror, and the hand of evil, Jesus wanted them to see beyond that. And to see Scripture being fulfilled. God's not far away. God's near. These are providential signs being fulfilled right down to the last details. I mean, notice every last word of verse 54, that it must be so. God has determined it, not just the arrest of Jesus, but how he would be arrested. And furthermore, God determined that the words of Scripture would all be fulfilled. Put away your sword. Submit to the determined will of God. And then in order to demonstrate that, Jesus heals the man whom Peter has just wounded. Jesus never led a military force. Jesus never advocated armed resistance. Jesus always and ever told us to love, to heal, to forgive enemies, and provides assurance that God's ways always went out. That was Jesus' words for his disciples. Now he has words to those who come to arrest him, and this is also a teachable moment for them. Matthew 26, 55 and 56. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus asks the question that he knows they won't answer. Why is it, he asks, that you didn't arrest me when I sat in the temple teaching? And of course, both he and they know the answer. This arrest this night is not legal. There will be charges to be sure, but the charges they will make will be about what Jesus said and taught, and if they had arrested him in front of the watching crowd, the hypocrisy of their arrest would have been known. And furthermore, they had come in the night with a great company of armed men, as if he were a robber that needed to be captured. But instead of being a zealot or some form of revolutionary who was dangerous, Jesus had always operated in the open. He had no secret agenda. For what he did, he did in the open and not in the dark. So why had they come out this way? And of course, the men coming to arrest him don't say a word. I mean, what should they say? They'd received orders and they were following them. But doesn't the question need to be answered? For no matter who you are, an army officer, a police officer, a government official, anyone under orders, the question is always there. Regardless of what you're commanded to do, you're still morally culpable for your behavior. And so it's never enough to say, I'm only obeying orders. Why have you come, asked Jesus. And then he answers his own question. You have come so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. I mean, Jesus has just taught his disciples that principle. Now he's teaching it to men who are morally culpable for their crimes against God. The eleven haven't understood. They've run away. But Jesus has told them something they will not forget in the future. And we mustn't forget it either. God's ways are never defeated. Scripture is always fulfilled. God's ways always win out.
0: Thanks, John. You know, a question today. It's somewhat related, but somewhat unrelated. I'm struck by the importance of Scripture being fulfilled and wondering if this is not a critical reason why God's people need to commit themselves to reading, studying, and knowing the Scriptures.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Of course. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we approach contemporary issues in our day, and and some of us panic because we see evil seeming to flourish in our day, or or, or something that seems out of sync with what we believe God should be doing. And some of us even lose faith because of that. You know, We might even shake our fist at God and saying, God, why aren't you doing something about this? And you're right, Ben. I, I think it's the absence of putting scriptures to heart, to to reading, to memorizing, to learning, to understanding it in its context. If we do all of that, it's amazing with how much greater clarity we can understand events that happen in the light of what God has given.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching, you can trust. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16, but sometimes the things we think we know lose our attention. If you'd be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Neufeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 3.16. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for His glory. Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month for free. So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.